you know, balanced diet of teaching for you adults. Um, try to have a mix of doctrinal classes where we're turn, learning about, you know, big, big ideas in the Bible. Um, we've done classes, for instance, on the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Scripture, um, doctrine of the covenant, doctrine of, of Christ, who is Christ, what did he do? Um, so this time we're going to be talking about the church. And uh, before we get going on that, I just want to m- mention um, one really encouraging announcement, matter for praise. Hopefully you saw this in the email, but just um, our intern from the summer, David Myron, had his big theology exam this week um, for the URC, which is a close sister denomination to us, and he passed that. So we're really thankful to God uh, for his really uh, faithful and diligent labors, not just in seminary, but even through the summer. He was studying, preparing for this exam. It was a very rigorous exam, which had a bunch of like lead-up exams to it, and then something like three hours on the floor where he was getting grilled. <laughs> so we praise God for him, and what this means now is he's now a candidate to be called to be a pastor in the URC. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to how God will use him, where God will lead him in the days ahead. Okay, so um, why should we t- talk about the doctrine of the church? Why, why does this um, doctrine matter? Um, and, you know, as I was thinking about the different things we could teach in this sort of doctrinal section of the year, um, lots of things came to mind as useful topics. Part of why I feel like this is a particularly vital topic for um, us in this present time is that in the church at large in America, um, and among people who would identify as Christians in America, um, the, the whole idea of the visible church is by and large denigrated. It's by and large seen as not that vital, not that important. How many people have you had tell you, I'm a Christian, but I don't really need to go to church. I don't, I don't feel like going to church. I just sort of have this, you know, personal relationship, me and Jesus. And, you know, uh, this guy was working on, on, on our house once, and I asked him, so, um, do you know, do you, are you a Christian? And he's like, yeah, you know, Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior. And I was like, awesome. So, uh, so where do you go to church? And he's like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't go to church. And after um, talking with him, I realized part of the reason why, in his case, was he had gone to church and had been really burned. Um, really, um, they had wronged him in a lot of ways, right? So sometimes there's those, those you know, background stories to why people hold this. But it is something, by and large, um, that, that is a big trend, is that the visible church, or what some people call organized religion, it's like, oh, please, save me from all that hypocrisy, right? <laughs> I don't need that stuff. I'm going to keep it real just by keeping it my own personal thing. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. (laughs) Right? The Bible says when you get saved and you get joined to Jesus, you are automatically brought into the community of the saints. The visible church is something that is not a human idea. This is not organized religion. Oh, these people kind of like coming up with this thing that they think is a good idea and, you know, guilt-tripping other people to do it. No, this is God's idea. So we need to recover that. We need to recover not just the idea of the institutional church, but the idea of membership. This is also something 
that um, over the years, just lots of people have asked me questions about, and Pastor Montgomery too, um, you know, okay, why, why, why can't we just kind of regularly attend a church? Why, why is membership, where you kind of commit to a church, why is that something that's so important? Something I hope we can bring out here together. There's also um, just a sense of like when you understand how the church fits into the the grand purposes of God, when you see how it's such a vital part of the Bible and God's purposes and salvation, it encourages you and gives you joy in the mission God's given to us, right? Remember our our mission statement is that we would worship God with enthusiasm and joy, that we would build up one another in the kingdom, build up the king, see the kingdom advance by building up one another in love, and that we would reach out to the world. Those are hard things to do sometimes, especially the last one, right? Reaching out to the world, evangelizing, that's a hard thing to do. Well, part of how we keep encouraged and keep energetic in those things is by remembering the glorious thing that God made when He made the church. So I want to encourage you to have a high view of the church so that then you'll have a joyful attitude towards fulfilling our vision. And then the final reason is when you think about Jesus, and you think about what he loves. What does he love most of all? Obviously his father, right? What's number two? The church. Jesus loves the church. He died for us. He was raised for us. Right now, he is just pouring out his love right now for us. If you love Jesus, I hope that you would also love the church with all of its problems and all of its imperfections. I hope that you would love the church of Jesus. And so that's one of the other goals I have for this class is just to to build that sense of like, you know, when Jesus looks at his people, what does he see? Does he see a, you know, just a, a, a total mess, a total train wreck of people messing stuff up? Well, sure, there's plenty of sin in the church, right? That's not what he sees. He sees his glorious bride. He, he sees what, what that you know, young, young, young groom sees when he looks down the aisle and sees his bride walking down the aisle, right? That is what Jesus sees when he sees the church. And that's what I hope that we'll see about us. So we're going to talk about four topics in, our, in the course of our time together. First, uh, you know, five or so classes is going to be what is the church. So this is going to be kind of like looking at big, big things in the Bible about what is the church. And I ask your patience in this, in this section for all you kind of very practically minded people. Um, you're like, well, tell me something like really like hands on. We'll get there. But I first need to lay this foundation of what is the church? What does the Bible actually say about what is the church? And then we're going to talk about the mission of the church. So what are we supposed to do? And then we're going to talk about membership in the church and and what does that look like? What does that mean? And finally, we'll talk about the government of the church, how God has organized his church to run. Um, So hopefully that'll, in the course of all of that, will answer a lot of your questions about the church. But I encourage you... um, be, be saving your questions and, and asking those questions as they come to mind, because I really want to answer those for you. Okay, so with all that uh, preface, any, any um, questions or thoughts as you, you all think about why the church is so important? Um, are there any other things that come to your mind about why this is an important thing?
I hope that as we go through this together, you'll realize, wow, God has done an awesome, awesome thing in giving to us his people. Do you mind, Dominic, just uh, going down that row and passing it? Thanks. Okay, so those of you who have been around a couple years know that I'm kind of, I don't know, fixated on the grand story of the Bible. <laughs> and uh, for my kids, hey, hang in there. <laughs> Back when I was candidating, I think Nathaniel said he had heard the grand story of the Bible something like 10 times <laughs> or something. Um, but I always like to begin by talking about the grand story of the Bible because that is how the Bible itself is organized. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1 leads us all the way to Revelation 22, the, the glorious new creation that will crown the end of the age. And what I want to do in this first time as a way of laying our foundations together is to talk about particularly the grand story of the church. So we are going to do like the entire story of the Bible in the next 40 minutes. Um, but we're going to particularly focus around the theme of the church. So even if you've heard my grand story of the Bible before, hopefully this will trigger new connections for you. And this is part of why I like to continue doing this because really you can only, you, you can't tell the, the grand story of the Bible too many times. Like there are so many different windows into the glory of what God is doing in history. So to begin, let's just talk about what we mean by the church. The church consists, this is my, my definition, it's really not my definition, it's Westminster Confession 25.1. The church consists of all the elect who have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, its head. Okay, in other words, the church refers to the people of God that spans all ages, past, even before Jesus, present, today, and even the future. All right? Now, immediately when you hear this, and you think about how we use the word church, you'll start to say to yourself, well, wait a second, that's not exactly what we mean when we talk about church, right? Um, we often use the word church, like I'm gonna, we're going to go to church today, um, or we talk about covenant Presbyterian church, right? In those cases, we're talking about a visible local body, right? And we know that in any local visible expression of the people of God, even if we were to talk about, say, the church in America, um, there's a mixture, right, of both visible, uh, uh, there's a mixture of both those who truly are elect, truly are saved, and Matthew 7 makes very clear, you know, all these people saying, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There are going to be some in the church who are not actually elect. So it is true that the visible church does contain a mixture of both those who truly are chosen by God who will appear on the last day with Jesus as the sheep, not as the goats, right? Um, but the visible church, you know, it's an approximation of what we really mean by the church, which is my definition here, which is everybody, past, present, and future, who is elect, who is chosen by God to be saved. Okay, now what I want to do in this grand story of the church is try to show how this definition plays out in history for us. That really, going all the way back to the beginning, we can talk about the church, including in the Old Testament here. But before we can even talk about the redeemed, we have to talk about how God 
started everything off in creation. So if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, what was God's purpose when he created human beings? He tells us, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and everything else. And he says, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So when we talk about God's purposes, does he want just a couple human beings? No, he wants an entire community, right, of human beings that would fill the earth And one really big theme in all of this is that God's people would rule the earth on his behalf. Okay, that was God's creation purpose, that his people would rule the earth on his behalf. So obviously they're under God, but God is ruling the world through human beings. And we could say they're not just made to be Rulers, kings, they're also made to be priests. And we see this in Genesis chapter 2, where he says that um, God planted the man, he put the man in the garden. Um, it says, verse, chapter 2, verse 15, to work it and to keep it, to guard and to keep this garden sanctuary. Those are priestly words, if you look at how those are used later in the Bible. So we're made for worshiping God, serving Him in worship, but also ruling. In other words, ordering the world in such a way that it reflects God and His excellence. Um, You look at, like, how the world was created. It was all very good, but it wasn't yet ordered and structured the way that God would have it be structured. We know that by looking at the end of the Bible. What, What happens at the end, right? The garden has become a city. The gold that was in Havilah and all these um, surrounding lands are now brought into the city and made to pave the streets with gold. So we have this twofold purpose. The people are to be priests for God. In other words, worshiping him. But they are also to be kings, rulers. This is their twofold identity. And it's a glorious identity when you think about it. I mean, here they are. This is the pinnacle of creation, human beings. Nobody reflects God's excellence. No part of creation reflects God's excellence the way we do. Everything else is made according to its kind. It says we are made according to God's image. That's only said about us human beings. What happens, though? Genesis 3, Satan tempts them. He tempts them, um, particularly on the level of God's goodness. Is God really, is he really um, giving you everything, or is he withholding something for you when he says you can't eat of this tree? Um, you think about what they were created to be, and you're like, how could he be withholding anything from them? But um, that's the way he tempts them, and they fall into sin and align with Satan in a counter-community against God. So here again, we're trying to focus on the theme of a people. Adam and Eve were made to be the beginnings of a people, a community. And what happens? They become aligned with Satan, become his people. Um, and what does God say in 3.15? When he's cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, means hostility, between you, the serpent, and the woman, 
and between her, your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there are two groups reflected here. What are the two groups God speaks of in Genesis 3.15? What are the two groups of people? Offspring of the woman, offspring of the servant. So now we have this, this basic fundamental reality that's going to reflect, the entire Bible is going to be about this when we talk about people. We've got serpent's offspring, the serpent's people, fallen humanity. And what is God going to do? He's going to take out of these people a remnant. There's going to be a portion who is taken out of these rebellious people. After all, it was the woman who rebelled along with the man against um, God and became basically Satan's people, right? God's going to take out of that. There's going to be from the seed of the woman is going to come this one who's going to crush the serpent's head, this remnant, which is God's people. So you have fallen humanity and you have redeemed humanity. And redeemed humanity comes out of fallen humanity. And this is what we see as the Bible begins to unfold. We begin to see individuals of faith over against the larger community of um, humanity, which is set against God. So who are some of the first people of faith, first people who realign themselves with God over against their default? which is to align with Satan. Well, Adam himself, arguably, look at Genesis 3.20. After God has confronted Adam, uh, the serpent, um, and the woman, and the man, what does it say? After all of this sort of like confrontation, you're going to be judged. You're going to, dust you are, to dust you shall return. In the midst of all of that, there was this promise of the seed of the woman coming to crush the serpent's head. What is Adam's response to that? It's incredible. 320. The man called his wife's name Chava, which means living one, or Eve is how it's anglicized, because she was the mother of all the living. There's a word play there, Chava and living, um, Chaya. And so she's the mother of all the living, okay? And what is God's response to that? He clothes them, not with their own fig leaves, but with garments of skin. And uh, he, he uh, basically, what is this saying? It's saying now you're no longer, your shame is covered. A, someone has died in your place, in this case an animal, which is a sign. And this, this is God's way of recognizing their faith. Okay, so we have this, this beginning of faith with Adam and then their son Abel. Um, offers an acceptable sacrifice. Noah, it says, verse, chapter 6, verse 8, is, uh, finds favor in the Lord, is righteous in God's sight. All of this we learn from Hebrews 11 is by faith. And yet the bulk of humanity is allied against God. And we see that in, in um, chapter 11. Remember, what was the purpose God gave for all humanity? To scatter throughout the earth, fill the earth with my image bearers, with my glory. What do they do at Babel? Clump all together and make a tower that's dedicated to their own name, right? Um, it's a tower built in rebellion against God. 
and so God scatters them in judgment. So what is this showing us? The bulk of humanity is allied together against God. When we talk about Satan's people, they're definitely a people. They're a united group, um, a large people. Here we just have scattered individuals, at least initially. But then God makes this big promise to Abram. And turn with me in chapter 12 to Abram. And remember, this is the theme we're tracing, God's people. So be thinking about what 12, 1 through 3 says about the theme of God's people. Abram, God says to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so what does this have to say about the people of God. Anybody? Lots of lots of things we learn from these few verses about the people of God. Yeah, Betty? Yeah. Yeah, here's um, Abram. He's coming out of his father's house, right? God's plucking him out from this family, which we later learn is from Ur of the Chaldees. Um, Presumably um, very close to where Babel was. Um, after all, Babel is um, the same word in Hebrew as later is used for Babylon. Um, it's the same exact word. So um, out of this big swath of humanity, God summons one guy, tells him to leave his father's house, and he go to this other place, right? And what else? What else do we learn about God's people from 12, 1 through 3. Okay, yes, we learn that in verse 2. There'll be people that oppose them. Actually, uh, yeah, verse 3. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. There will be people who will be afflicting you. Um, after all, seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, they are at odds with each other. Very good. And also, we know that it's going to be from Abram that the people will come, right? Abram's the beginning of a people. Right? And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. So from this one, one guy, isolated man of faith, will come a nation, a people. Right, And look at, look at verse 3. He even goes so far as to say, and this is mysterious, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Implication, there will be a reclaiming not just of this one little swath of humanity, um, Abraham's offspring, but somehow all the nations will be blessed through this one man. And just skip a little ahead. This is on your handout, some of these verses here. But look at 15.5. God's just, he's building on, on the core idea in 12, 1 through 3. He takes Abram outside. Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. So as many as the stars in the heavens and elsewhere we hear as many as the sand as many particles of sand as there are on the seashore, that's how many your offspring will be. And then look at 22, 16 through 18, after Abraham passes his test of sacrificing Isaac, God has some big things to say about the people. He says, because you've not withheld your only son, now 22, 17, I will surely bless you, Abraham. Excuse me, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. Yes, we've 
We've heard that part before. And he says this, And your offspring shall possess the gate of the enemies, of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay, so this is kind of the, the big plan um, that God is setting. He's really committing himself to Abraham. We now know that God's people will be now is equated with Abraham's offspring. This is God's commitment to Abraham, and it's unconditional. You notice what I just read to you? It's not like, um, well, if you guys continue to be good, then I'll be faithful to Abraham. No, Abraham, by his act of obedience, has now secured this oath that God has made that his people will come from Abraham. God is absolutely bent on arranging the world like this. Him ruling the world through a priest-kingly people who will, who will oversee the entire world on his behalf. He says about Abram, kings will come forth from your line, and we're thinking to ourselves, ah, that's the reclaiming of the plan from all the way back in Genesis 1. So how does this play out? Well, God begins with Abraham's children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, and we find in, and I'm going to trace now the, the progress towards this goal in, in the Old Testament, we find in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, and we just talked about this when we were going through Exodus, but um, in case you weren't there, we see this amazing declaration right at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. Verse 7, the people were, of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled them, with them. They started out as 70 persons. That's what we read in verse 5. But within several generations, now they have filled the earth, or at least filled Egypt, <laughs> with uh, their multiplied tribes. Okay, so they are, they are already, um, God's already doing um, the first piece which he said to Abraham, which is, I'm going to fill, I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Um, Deuteronomy 1, Moses looks at the, the people and says, you guys are now that numerous. That's how, how many there are of them. Um, and then it says, as we go on through Exodus, that they are oppressed. The seed of the serpent is oppressing them. Um, we saw this over the summer with Pharaoh attacking the people, trying to kill all the children. Again, seed of the woman versus seed of the serpent. And then what, what does God do? He creates a people out of nothing. Here's this basically families of tribes of, of, of slaves in Egypt. What does he do for them? He brings them out. He rescues them. In Exodus 15, the Red Sea and he makes a covenant with them. And this is really important because at this stage, we start to hear the words people. Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you, God says, to be my people, and I will be your God. You should be my people, I will be your God. You should be my people, I will be your God. This is the covenant formula. And what's really interesting about this is that it is also the marriage formula. So, uh, Song of Solomon 1, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Right? 
It's this mutual belonging one to another. God now is taking his people as his bride. And just like, um, you know, at a wedding, husband and wife make vows to each other. God and the people make vows. And they say, we'll be faithful to you um, forever. And what does God do then? Well, then Exodus 15, uh, sorry, Exodus 25 and following is all about the details of the construction of the tabernacle. And we're like, man, this is kind of hard going as we're reading through our Bibles, right? What's the big idea, though? God reinstituting worship. And he comes down in Exodus 40 and actually dwells with them. And then in Leviticus 8 through 9, we hear about how the priesthood is consecrated, Aaron and his sons, and they offer the very first sacrifices. Remember what happens? God sends fire out from the most holy place, consumes the sacrifice. What has been, what has been initiated? Worship, worshiping fellowship between God and his people has been reestablished here. And of course, God hasn't forgotten about the kings, and in 2 Samuel 7, he creates a, um, a kingship of his per- perfect design, which is um, David and his offspring. And what's interesting is that whereas Adam was a priest king, in Israel, these are kept separate. Um, there are, there's the line of Aaron, they're the priests, and then there's the line of David, they're the kings, right? And yet, even though they're separate, they, they overlap in the sense that um, there is uh, no division of church and state at all in Israel, right? The civil and religious spheres, as I say there, completely overlap. What's the membership of the church? Well, it's the nation of Israel, right? Everybody who is in Israel is a visible member of the people of God. And so there is, there is a, the religious right of entrance, which is what? Circumcision, right? That religious right of entrance also marks everybody who is in the, a citizen of the state of Israel as well. And so you want to know who is the visible people of God? Well, just look at this nation, Israel. And that's why if you were in Israel and you defied the Lord, uh, Deuteronomy 13 envisions this as a possibility. Deuteronomy 13 says, if somebody comes and says, hey, let's worship other gods, uh, capital punishment for that, right? You cannot be in this nation if you're worshiping Baal. That's the way it was meant to be anyway. Um, Okay, yeah, so there's this clear divide between outsiders and um, insiders. If we want to know, you know, again, drawing the seed of the serpent and... Abraham's offspring. You want to know who is in each sphere. Remember, this is the remnant taken from this. You want to know who's in which sphere. Well, you just look at who is Israel, right? Israel. Everyone who is circumcised. Okay? Everybody who's not circumcised, what do we call them? Gentiles. Okay? Those are not God's people. And yet, even in the Old Covenant, 
there's fluidity. So it's not like, oh, I'm born into this nation that's not Israel. That means I'm just toast. Well, actually, no. Hopefully you remember this from when we were going through Exodus. Remember Exodus 12, 42? If there's anybody who's there sojourning with you and they want to take the Passover, this is Exodus 12, 48, sorry. If a stranger so, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. So you can become Israel, even though you're a Gentile. You can become part of God's people. And Rahab does this. Ruth does this. Remember how Ruth says to Naomi, your God shall be my God, right? She makes a profession of faith. Even though she um, cannot be circumcised as a woman, she still joins the people of God by becoming one with them in faith. Okay, so Israel is meant to be a picture of God's creation purposes renewed. All that God intended in creating the world and creating human beings has now been reestablished in Israel. Israel is like Adam and Eve replayed. And now we have a new creation picture here. Um, unfortunately, the picture gets messed up, gets defiled, right? There were definitely two people of faith through this time. We already mentioned several, Ruth, Rahab, wonderful women of faith, um, obviously Moses and, and, um, and others. Joshua and his generation were filled with people of faith. And there are other heroes, you know, our Old Testament heroes like uh, David and Josiah and Daniel. These guys are are totally people of faith. We know that. They really loved God. Not questioning that at all. Nevertheless, for the people as a whole, Israel, what do they do? After all that God has given them, and really the high point is in 1 Kings 8 and 8 through 10, when God establishes a king, Solomon, with his temple. So we have both rule and worship, priests and kings doing what they're supposed to do. What happens? Well, even Solomon himself begins sinning against God, turning against him and embracing other gods, right? And so Israel as a whole begins to tank, and God's trying to hold them back by sending his prophets and saying, look, if you're going to be my people, you have to be my obedient people. You can't be priests and kings under God if you defy God. And so he's sending his prophets, confronting them. But eventually, he has to say this. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 1. And if you're tracking with this theme of the people, and if you're remembering that phrase, you shall be my people, I will be your God. You shall be your pe my people, you, you shall be my people, I will be your God. Look at verse 9 of Hosea 1. Hosea has this son. And this is what the, the name of this boy is supposed to be. The Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. What does this mean? What's the implication of God saying this? You are not my people. I'm not your God. Yeah, this is divorce language. Uh, the people who were God's bride have so chased after Baals, so chased after the false gods of the people of the land, so committed harlotry, spiritual harlotry, with these other false gods that now he must declare, 
you are no longer my people. So he banishes them into exile. And yet, this is, this is part of the amazing part of reading the prophets and part of why as much as there are lots of like judgment and hard things in the prophets, like maybe 75% of the prophets is, <laughs> is uh, hard stuff, um, there is all of the wonderful promises that God gives through the prophets too. And all of those promises are in some way connected to the reclaiming of God's people. Judgment for God's people, he's going to do away with the shadow, the picture. The picture has become <clears throat> destroyed. The picture is no longer a good picture. No longer are they picturing this, God ruling the world through human beings who are priests and kings. And so God's people must be undone so that he might then restore a new and better people. And just consider some of the things he does say in all the prophets. He says he's going to do this great event of an exodus, Isaiah 40 through 55. And think about what an exodus is, right? Here's this huge swath of humanity in Egypt, all those Egyptians, right, as well as Israel. What does God do? He takes a segment out to form a new people, right? There's going to be a new exodus where God is going to take a segment of people out to form, through some great work of deliverance, a new people. And what, what's going to happen immediately after that, that taking of that segment out? There's going to be a new and better covenant. That's just like what happened in the first exodus, right? And yet this new covenant is going to be even better than the old. And here's where some of these passages are just so amazing. Because if you're thinking about how messed up Israel was, and how they, even though they had all these gifts, they still disobeyed. You might be saying to yourself, well, a new exodus, great. That probably means there's going to be a new apostasy too, just like Israel. Oh, no. God is going to, going to deal decisively with the problem that made it so Israel fell. Look at Jeremiah 24, 7. God promises, I'll just read this to you. I'll give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people and I will be their God, for they shall return to me. Or another way of translating this is repent back to me with their whole heart. Or Jeremiah 32 says something very similar. <clears throat> In verse 39, he says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And one more, Ezekiel chapter 36. He says he's going to cleanse their hearts from all their idols. And he says in chapter 36, 26, he's going to put a new spirit within them, remove the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit within you, cause you, and this is amazing, right? He's going to say, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that sin that led to Israel becoming apostate, God's going to finally deal with that and make them new. And he even says, and remember all those things he had said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now we begin to hear about the Gentiles being joined as God's people. And I don't really have time to go through all of those, but those are some of the most remarkable passages in the Old Testament. Um, you know, it's too small a thing, you, the servant who's going to be the rescuer, 
It's too small a thing that you be a savior for, um, for the Israel only. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And it's just unequivocal in some of these passages, like Zechariah 2, that these two will become one. Um, Gentile and Jew who love Christ will become one. And that's what eventually happens. In time, God sends his son. And when we talk about Jesus and his work on the cross for us, we need to think about it in terms of all the lead-up to this great work that the Old Testament gave us. What did the, what did the, what did the um, Old Testament expect of us? It, uh, it encourages us to expect. It encourages us to expect a new Israel, complete with new exodus and new, you know, new covenant and everything, right? Jesus comes, and isn't it amazing, when he is baptized by John, he says, permit it to be so that I might fulfill all righteousness. And what does it say even before that? In um, Matthew 2.15, he quotes Hosea, and he says, out of Egypt I've called my son. When Jesus is brought out of Egypt um, by his family, what's it all saying? It's saying, look, this one who fasted 40 days in the wilderness and then emerges across the Jordan River to begin a conquest of Satan's kingdom, this, this man is the new Israel you've been waiting for. This is the true Israel. And that's why later in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is referred to as the first fruits of God's people. So when we think about God's people, if we were to make it like a triangle like this, we're at the head there is someone very special. In the Old Testament, it was the, the king, right? This new head of God's people is Jesus. And isn't it amazing? Jesus is the ultimate priest and the ultimate king in one. We saw ultimate priest all over the place when we were going through Hebrews. Pastor Montgomery taking us through Hebrews. And, of course, Jesus is the son of David. He's the one who's going to reestablish right worship and finally rule the world as an obedient son. And as such, he becomes the first fruits, the first of the new humanity. Um, he's, he's from this fallen humanity, from Mary, part of that fallen humanity, God brings forth the beginnings of a new humanity. Jesus is the beginning of the end times people of God. He is the first heir of God's promises. Isn't that amazing? Have you thought about Jesus as the first heir of God's promises? Have you thought about all those promises God made in the restoration? Um, you know, that, that he would give them back the land, that he would um, cause um, them to dwell in perfect fellowship with him again, that he would reinstitute um, a new temple did, have you thought about how, like, Jesus is the beginning of that? That he's the first recipient of that? When he was raised from the dead, what did he receive? Anybody? All authority in heaven and on earth. He became the king of kings, right? He sat down at the right hand of the authority on high. What else did he receive? Acts 2 says he received the Spirit to the uttermost, right? And then he turned and gave that Spirit to us. Jesus, as a man, 
You think of Jesus as God, he's obviously the, the self-existing one who doesn't need to receive anything, right? But as a man, he receives from his father everything that the father promised. And so as a recipient, he then turns and gives everything he's received to us. He is the first heir of God's promises. And so what happens when somebody believes in Jesus? They become joined to the new Israel. And that's what's happening in this present phase of history. Jesus is gathering to himself his church. Okay, so if Jesus is the head, we, the church, are united to him. And when you become united to him, you share in his identity. You get everything that he gets. And so now God can say, because of your union with Jesus, things like 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 9. I mean, this is, this is amazing stuff when you see it in the context of the whole. He says, you, and here he's talking to, think about this, Jews and Gentiles. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all things he says are true of the church. A people for his own possession... It's special language. It means basically my very precious people, um, my, my treasured people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is the new Israel who has now received all of the promises that go all the way back to Abraham all the things that God had promised to Abraham, we now are recipients of. In fact, he even says in, first, in Galatians 3, we are the children of Abraham, the true children. Not according to the flesh, many of us, but by the Spirit. And what does that mean in terms of our mission? It means we inherit now Jesus' priestly, kingly mission. So we, what was Jesus to be doing? Um, reestablishing right worship and honoring God through his conduct in all the world, ruling the, God, ruling the world on God's behalf. We now share in that, and we now get to be part of bringing people into that community of people who are living for God and worshiping God. That's what the Great Commission is. It's a priestly, kingly thing that God has given us to do. And not, is it done yet? Obviously not, right? Um, Jesus has founded this new reality through his death and his resurrection, but we're waiting for one day when everybody will be gathered in, the day of glory, when Jesus returns. And finally, everything will be as God intended it at the creation. At that time, all of God's elect will be united to Jesus. Nobody will be left out of his body. Think about it. There are many people right now who are chosen by God who are not yet joined to the body of Christ. Or um, not all of us who are joined to Christ are perfect in holiness. Only those who have gone on to glory and died, right? Um, and been, been joined to Christ. So we'll all be perfected in holiness. And one last thing is we'll all be gathered together in one place in God's embodied worship. In other words, in our bodies. Our bodies are an intrinsic part of who we are as human beings. Just being perfected in your soul in heaven is not the final purpose God has for you. So um, that's the grand story of God's people in all too few words. Um, any questions before I ask a few of my questions? Or, yeah, 
Comments? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, 19, I think, 5 and 6, those um, words that God spoke to Israel at Sinai, Peter now quotes, and he actually incorporates a number of other, like, Israel-specific texts, and says, now you guys are that, right? Yeah. Excellent. Other thoughts on this? I just want to make a couple applications. One is this. The church and Israel are one. Please do not think of there being two peoples of God today. Um, Israel, you know, ethnic Israel, and the church. No. God very clearly states there are not two peoples of God, but one. And, and part of what that means is all of those faithful ones from this period, do you think of them as your brothers and sisters in Christ? Like there are not two religions in the Bible, one where you're saved by Christ and another where you're saved in some other way, Right? We're all saved by faith in Christ, whether looking forward to him or looking back to what he's done, right? Um, And so when we talk about the elect, we're talking about Adam, Abel, Noah, all of those faithful people in Hebrews 11, Abraham, and all of us, right? And we're all going to appear in one place, joined together as one. The other key piece I just want you to take away from this is if you get this story— you get your purpose in this world. You have a priestly duty. You are a part of the royal priesthood. You are to worship God with all your heart. And you have a kingly duty. Everything God's entrusted to you, um, all the space he's given to you, the, the, the land he's given to you, the skills he's given to you, the time he's given to you, the energy he's given to you, are made. you're to rule that on God's behalf. It's what it means to love God all your heart. It's a reestablishment of his, his purposes in creation. God has renewed you from part of the dead, fallen humanity to now the new humanity in Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Lord, we are thankful for this epic story, a story that we are in. And we know that if we want to understand the church, we have to understand your big purposes. And so we pray, help us to keep these big purposes in view as we move through this class Help us to really rejoice as a church that we are these renewed people. Help us to want to um, embrace this identity of worship and of rule. Lord, help us to want to bring others into it. We know this is part of our mission, is to draw others in to this great and glorious reality, which is only to be found in Christ, of the new humanity. Lord, hasten the day of your return when we can all be together with all the saints, even going way, way back and worshiping you as one. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. And we pray you bless even now our worship of you in union with, with Christ in just a short time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody.